when Moses ascended Mount Sinai to receive the law of God, it says in Exodus 24:18 that Moses went into the midst of the cloud and was in the mount 40 days and 40 nights. We are also told that while he was there, the sight of the glory of the Lord was like devouring fire on the top of the mount in the eyes of the children of Israel. So for 40 days and for 40 nights, Moses and Joshua are up on this fiery mountain. And while they are there, God speaks to Moses and gives him the uh, architectural drawings, the blueprints for constructing the tabernacle. And then, as we heard in the reading earlier, uh, God inscribes with his own finger on two stone tablets the law of the covenant, two tables of testimony. Now, uh, while this climactic and glorious revelation is being given up on the mountain, meanwhile, down below, the people are losing faith. They are starting to doubt whether Moses and Joshua will ever come down. Exodus 32.1 says, Now when the people saw that Moses delayed coming down from the mountain, the people gathered together to Aaron and said to him, Come, make us gods that shall go before us. For as for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. We all know what happens next. Aaron makes a golden calf for the people. He builds an altar for them to worship before, and the people offer sacrifices unto it. They commit idolatry. So at the same time that God is giving this glorious revelation to Moses. He's revealing how Israel is to uh, approach him and worship him. The people down below are doing exactly what God forbids. They are worshiping a lifeless golden image as if it is God when it is no such thing. Well, our text this morning follows a very similar pattern to this apostasy at Sinai. While Jesus is up on the mountain being transfigured before Peter, James, and John. We saw him talking with Moses and Elijah. The other disciples are down below with the crowds. They're trying to cast out an evil spirit from a boy, but are unable to do so. We are told specifically that this is a deaf and dumb spirit, a spirit that prevents this boy from hearing or speaking. And this deaf and dumb spirit causes seizures. It casts him into the fire and the water. It is trying to to kill him. And when Jesus comes down from the mountain, like Moses did, his response is a strong rebuke. He says in verse 19, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring him unto me. So there are three questions I want us to consider as we work through this passage. And as we do, I want you to keep that scene at Sinai in your mind. Just uh, keep that in the back of your mind. Look for some of the parallels. Uh, Note the parallels between the golden calf apostasy and this demonic possession. And I'll try to draw some of these out for you. But there are are three questions I want to ask and answer in this sermon. Uh, The first is, why does this son, this boy, this, this young man, have a dumb and deaf spirit in the first place? How is it that a child can become possessed? That's the first question. Second question is, what does Jesus reveal about himself by the way that he casts out this demon? And then the third question is, why could not the disciples cast this evil spirit out? So starting with question one, why does the son 
have a dumb spirit in the first place. Uh, In verse 21, Jesus asks the son's father, how long is it ago since this spirit came unto him? You know, he's like a doctor uh, asking the patient, you know, how, how long has this been happening? And the father says that it has harassed him since he was a child. Sometimes it would cast him into the fire, sometimes into the waters. This spirit has been trying to kill his son for years, but he has not yet succeeded. Despite this great affliction, there is a certain resiliency this son has shown. He has these recurring seizures. He does not seem to be able to hear or talk, and yet somehow he's still alive. But how did he end up this way? How does someone become possessed? Well, in the Bible, uh, there are a number of instances where God uh, pulls back the veil, and he shows us how the spiritual realm interacts with the earthly realm. Uh, One such occasion of this is when uh, King Saul disobeys the Lord, and Saul goes from being filled with God's spirit to being troubled troubled by an evil spirit. Uh, I'll read you 1 Samuel 16. It says, But the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord troubled him. And it came to pass, when the evil spirit from God was upon Saul, that David took in harp and played with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well, and the evil spirit departed from him. Another example of this would be uh, in Judges 9, where God sends an evil spirit between Abimelech and the men of Shechem as an act of justice. Uh, It says in Judges 9, When Abimelech had reigned three years over Israel, then God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the men of Shechem. And the men of Shechem dealt treacherously with Abimelech, that the cruelty done to the threescore and ten sons of Jerubbaal might come, and their blood be laid upon Abimelech their brother, which slew them, and upon the men of Shechem, which aided him in the killing of his brethren. So that's just two examples, but uh, we can see here one of the reasons... One of the reasons why people become possessed by evil and demonic spirits is because they have done something very wicked. And therefore, God removes his hand of protection and he allows evil spirits to harass them. This was the case with Saul. This was the case with Abimelech and the men of Shechem. And there are uh, many other examples of this in scripture. Um, In the language of Romans 1, we could say uh, this is God giving people over to what their sinful hearts want. They don't want to worship God. They don't want to obey God. They want to serve idols and worship creatures. And God lets them. He says, if that's who you really want to worship, I'll show you what that gets you. You can have a taste of the wickedness that you so desire. So in scripture, when God is said to send an evil spirit upon someone, uh, this is paraphrastic, this is metaphorical for him uh, uh, removing his protection. He's simply withdrawing his protection. He's giving them over to their sinful desires and the domain of the devil. God does this in scripture with individuals. He does this with families. He does this with whole tribes. He does this with whole nations. And God does this as both punishment for sin and also so that they will repent. So they'll see just how miserable it is to have Satan and demons for your gods. Uh, By way of an aside, this is also why Paul uh, commands that the church uh, excommunicate those people who are unrepentant. He says in 1 Corinthians 5.5, Deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. 
So God punishes and disciplines people by giving them over to what they want. That, that's, that's what justice is. Uh, hell is locked from the inside. Uh, God just says, if you don't want my will to be done, then your will be done. You can go where you want. You can go to a place where I am not. You can uh, be away from my blessed presence. So this is how God punishes and disciplines people. He gives them over to the domain of the devil, to the desires of their hearts, and he does this in hope that they will not like it. You're not supposed to like being cast out of the church and given over to the domain of the devil. But the hope is that your spirit will still be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus because you'll come to not like being under the domain of the devil and return to the church. So this is the logic of God's punishment, God's discipline, and even uh, demonic possession. Now what about this man's son? Why is he possessed? What did he do, if anything, to deserve this demonic affliction? Well, uh, we're not told what was in this boy's heart. We do not know if he had committed a murder as, as a child or some other grave sin in his youth. The text does not tell us. But what the text does call our attention to, and what Jesus rebukes the people for, is being a faithless generation. He comes down from the mountain, kind of like Moses, his anger's waxing hot, and he says to them, O oh, faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring him unto me. This is almost an exasperated rebuke that Jesus gives them. And he gives this rebuke to everyone standing there. This is a rebuke to the boy, to his father, even to his disciples, to the scribes and to the crowd. They are together a faithless generation. God has come and visited them in the flesh, but they do not yet believe. Remember uh, who Israel was. Israel was God's adopted firstborn son. God says to Pharaoh in Exodus 4, Thus saith the Lord, Israel is my son, even my firstborn. And I say unto thee, Let my son go that he may serve me. And if thou refuse to let him go, behold, I will slay thy son, even thy firstborn. So the nation of Israel, of which all these people standing here are a part, have broken faith with God. They are rebellious sons. They have chosen to worship idols instead of the Lord. And because of this, as we've seen through the Gospel of Mark, the whole region, like everywhere Jesus goes, he's casting out demons. Everywhere, in, in, the, uh, in Judea, in Galilee, in the places where there's Jews, he goes into Gentile places, there's demons there. There's just like demons everywhere when you read uh, the gospel. Well, this is part of God's judgment on Israel, on the land, for their faithlessness. The whole land of promise, the holy land, has become unholy because of their faithlessness. And so this son, he is suffering the effects of living in such a godless place. In a spiritual sense, this son, notice he's unnamed, he's just call, called a boy or the son. This son is a living parable. He's a picture of what Israel has become. Mark has been showing us in this gospel that Israel is unable to hear. They are unable to speak. They are suffering under demonic oppression and none has been able to deliver them. Israel has become like the deaf and dumb idols that it worships. We see this principle set forth in uh, Psalm 115 that we become like what we worship. We become like the object that we worship. 
Describing the idols of the nations, the psalmist says, they have mouths, but they do not speak. Eyes they have, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. Noses they have, but they do not smell. They have hands, but they do not handle. Feet they have, but they do not walk. Nor do they mutter through their throat. Those who make them are like them. So is everyone who trusts in them. Psalm 115, 5 and 6. So Israel had put its trust in idols. And therefore they had become as dumb and deaf and senseless as the idols. We'll see later, the temple has become a den of thieves. The places that God erected for justice have become places of oppression. And so God gave Israel over to their desires. He withdrew his hand of protection, and he allowed them to be conquered, subdued, and oppressed by the surrounding nations, all because they wanted to serve those other nations' gods. And so in this son, you have a picture of Israel. From the time of his youth, this spirit of deafness and dumbness had afflicted him. He refused to heed the voice of God at Sinai. He refused to make true confession before the nations. And no sooner had God adopted Israel out of Egypt into his house and given them his law that they're stripping off their clothes and dancing before a golden calf. Exodus 32, 6 says, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. This is what happens to you when you worship idols. You become less than a man. You become like a beast. So Jesus asks this boy's father, how long is it ago since this came unto him? And the father says, of a child, of a child. Do you remember what Moses did to the golden calf when he came down from the mountain? It says, he took the calf which they had made and he burned it in the fire. And he ground it to powder, and he scattered it on the water, and made the children of Israel drink it. The deaf and dumb idol is cast into the fire and then the water, and Israel is made to drink that judgment into itself. Well, what is this deaf and dumb spirit trying to do to this son? It's casting him into the fire and into the water. It's trying to drown him. You become like what you worship. And this is what faithlessness, this is what worshiping false gods, lifeless gods, gets you. So to our question, why did this boy become possessed? Well, because he lived in a nation and household of idolaters. He had no faith of his own. He did not have his father's faith, baptism, circumcision, no church to protect him. And therefore, he was vulnerable to demonic possession. It is spiritually dangerous to live without faith amidst a faithless generation. And we see the effects of this all around us. This brings us to our second question. How does Jesus deal with such faithless people? And more specifically, what does Jesus reveal about himself by the way that he casts out this this demon? Well, notice that in verse 20 it says, and when he saw him, whether the boy or the demon, straightway the spirit tear him. And he fell on the ground and wallowed, foaming. So this this boy, this young man, he starts having a seizure, an episode, and he's convulsing on the ground. So imagine this scene. He's on the ground, convulsing. He's foaming at the mouth. You'd be thinking, uh, you know, is there a medic around here? Is there a doctor around here? And Jesus does not intervene. He does not immediately go down and heal him. 
Instead, he turns and has a conversation with the father. How long has this been happening? The father says, from childhood. And then he pleads with Jesus that if he has the power, have compassion on us and help us. Well, Jesus is overflowing with compassion. Love is who Jesus is. And yet, God's love and compassion wants something more for this man and his son than mere healing. What Jesus wants to give these men and us who are watching is a reason to believe, a motivation to trust him. And so he challenges this man with a condition. He says, if you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. Right? The boy is still on the ground having a seizure. And Jesus says, if you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. What is Jesus doing? Well, he's exposing the reason for all their troubles. They don't trust God. They don't worship God. They don't love God. They don't obey God. If they did those things, no such exorcism would be needed. And so in verse 24, we have a very honest confession from the father. And straightway the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. This father recognizes that his lack of faith has left himself and his son vulnerable. They are the faithless generation that Jesus was rebuking. And so he cries out with tears of desperation. His son still wallowing in, on the ground. I believe, help thou mine unbelief. And then in verses 25 to 27, we behold the compassion of God. What is God's disposition towards this faithless generation? When Jesus saw that the people came running together, he rebuked the foul spirit, saying unto him, Thou dumb and deaf spirit, I charge thee, come out of him, and enter no more into him. And the spirit cried and rent him sore, and came out of him, and he was as one dead, insomuch that many said, He is dead. But Jesus, Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. Jesus resurrects this son whom he loves. And notice that he does so apart from anything that the son does. Right? What was the son doing? Well, the son was wallowing and foaming at the mouth. His father intercedes for him with a partial and weak faith. And yet the object of that faith was Christ and Christ is God. And with God, all things are possible to those who believe. Who is Jesus? He is the compassionate and omnipotent God. And he is more than willing to resurrect a nation if they will cry out to him, even if someone else cries out to him on their behalf, right? This is why our church every Lord's Day intercedes for our nation. This is why we pray the hear us, O Lord, and have mercy, amen, prayer every week. Because we believe that Jesus is more than willing to cast out the dumb and deaf spirits of our age if we will cast ourselves upon his mercy, if we will just say to him, we believe, but help our unbelief. Just as David played the harp and the evil spirit departed from Saul, so now the voice of Christ is the music that casts down demonic strongholds. This is why we sing the Psalms. As it says in Psalm 91, he who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. The Jews, there, there are certain exorcism psalms in the Psalter, and Psalm 91 is one of them. 
Psalm 91 is one of them. Uh, we also have been singing Psalm 121. I think we're going to sing it again today. And you know how it talks about uh, the sun will not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. Have you ever wondered, like, uh, what's up with the moon striking someone? Well, this word, moonstruck, uh, moon is luna. You can think of someone being a lunatic. Uh, that is, uh, in the text, what this boy is suffering with. He's, he's moonstruck. He's struck by the moon. And so this is not to say the moon causes these things. But what the, what the demons do is they try to uh, imitate certain cycles of nature so that you think that it's the moon that's causing it when it's really, really the demon. Okay, this, this is an aside. But Psalm 91 is one, one of these uh, exorcism psalms or psalms of protection uh, that the Jews would sing. He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. That is to say that by faith in Christ, we come under the shadow of his wing, his protection. Whereas apart from him, outside of his protection, those who are faithless are vulnerable to demons and evil spirits. They are unclean and unclean spirits search after them. So what kind of generation shall we be? Will we be faithless or faithful? And will we intercede on behalf of our faithless nation that is wallowing in its sin and foaming at the mouth? Finally, we come to our third question. Why couldn't the disciples cast this evil spirit out? This is the question, of course, the disciples want to know. They, they ask Jesus this in verse 28. And Jesus answers saying, this kind can come forth by nothing but by prayer and fasting. This kind can come forth by nothing but by prayer and fasting. And by the way, if you have like an ESV or uh, some of the other modern translations, they actually delete the fasting part. Uh, and that is an error to do that because <laughs> it's in the text. Uh, and uh, you can email me if you have questions about this. But the King James, the New King James, it retains uh, this reading. This is the ancient reading in the church. It's also in Matthew as well. This kind can come forth by nothing but by prayer and fasting. Uh, earlier in chapter 6, the disciples were given power over unclean spirits. Mark 6.13 says, And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Well, why is it that now that their powers seem to not be working? Right? If you've ever seen one of those superhero movies and you know, Spider-Man's trying to shoot his web or something, it's like, why isn't it coming out? Right? This, is, this is the disciples. They have experienced the power of God working through them. They've cast out demons before, and they're wondering, why is this not working now? Well, there's a few reasons for this that we can conclude from Jesus' answer. I'm just going to give you one of them. I'll leave some of the other reasons for you to uh, think about and discuss. Uh, the reason uh, that Jesus gives is that not all spirits are the same. He says, this kind, this kind can come forth by nothing but by prayer and fasting. So uh, when you survey the scriptures... Uh, you learn that some evil spirits are stronger or more wicked than others. There is a demonic hierarchy just like there is a celestial hierarchy. Uh, one example of this, uh, Jesus says in Matthew 12, 43 to 45, he says, when an unclean spirit goes out of a man, he goes through dry places seeking rest and finds none. Then he says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when he comes, he finds it empty, swept and put in order. 
Then he goes and takes with him seven other spirits, more wicked, there it is, more wicked than himself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that man is worse than the first. So also shall it be with this wicked generation. All right, so not all evil spirits are the same, and this kind in particular. This kind in particular says Jesus, uh, Jesus says requires prayer and fasting. Not all evil spirits are the same. This kind, Jesus says, requires prayer and fasting to cast out. Now, uh, this principle uh, applies equally to different kinds of sins that we struggle with. And I think all of us will, re- will resonate with the reality that there are just some sins that are easier to avoid and some sins that just kind of seem to not get out of your life, no matter how hard you try. Some sins are easier than others to overcome, to expel, while others seem impossible to get rid of. Uh, we call these more difficult sins uh, besetting sins or vices. These are the sins that have become habitual for us. They can feel like an addiction. They can even start to feel like a part of your very identity, who you are. They can come to define you. You know, If you are a highly anxious person, anxiety is, is a sin. It's something that uh, God calls out, calls us not to be ang- anxious. But we've met people that it's like, that's their whole entire mode of existing. They're just anxious about everything all, all the time. So we have these besetting sins, these vices that are hard to overcome. And if that's you, if you're feeling stuck somewhere, one of the remedies that Jesus gives us is prayer and fasting. Prayer and fasting. You need to cut out the distractions, the reliance upon food and other carnal things so that you can know deep down in your belly, in your stomach, in your guts, how desperately you need God. What is fasting meant to teach us? It's meant to teach us to hunger for God more than we hunger for food. It exposes to us, it reveals to us our over-reliance upon the flesh and carnal things. It also weakens our body so that we are forced to rely on God to supply our strength. As it says in Hebrews 13, 9, it is good that the heart be established or strengthened by grace, not with foods which have not profited those who have been occupied with them. We live in a day where people are very occupied by foods and the kind of foods and what it does to your body. And Hebrews says, it's good that the heart not the body, the heart, be established or strengthened by grace, not with foods which have not profited those who have been occupied with them. It's very easy to say that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. But it is a lot more difficult to go without bread, physical bread, and feed only upon the word. And this is what fasting can help to teach us that we are people with huge physical and carnal appetites and very tiny spiritual appetites that need to grow. So if you're feeling stuck, if you feel like there is a vice, a sin in your life that just will not go away, perhaps, perhaps you need to fast and pray. This kind can come forth by nothing but by prayer and fasting, Jesus says. I'll close with this. Fasting is a voluntary death. It is the choice to forego something good and lawful that God created to be enjoyed in order to gain something greater and more glorious. And this is what Christ has done for you. Jesus could have left you in your sins. 
He could have left you wallowing in the ground, foaming at the mouth, suffering the just penalty for your unfaithfulness. And yet because of his great love and compassion, he chooses to undergo a voluntary fast, a fast from the very life that emanates from him. Jesus chooses, he volunteers to die on the cross. He lays his life down. And he did this because he wants something greater and more glorious. And what is that? Well, it is you. He wants you. You are the joy that was set before him for which he despised the shame of the cross. Jesus wants to bring you home to his father's house where there's no more pain, no more suffering, and joy everlastingly. Jesus wants to give you eternal life. So believe in him and ask him to help your unbelief. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. Amen. Let me pray. Father, before we intercede for anyone else, we ask for ourselves that you would help our unbelief. God, our faith waxes and wanes. Our sight of you, our trust in you goes up and down. It fluctuates. It fluctuates according to what we ate that day. God, we are so frail and fragile and subject to distraction. And we ask that you would give us a greater measure of faith, a faith even to move mountains. And we ask that you would do this in our own life, remove those sinful vices, those besetting sins that we've been struggling against for decades. God, deliver us, release us, give us victory over them so that we can more accurately shine your glory to the world, to other people. And Lord, we do pray for our unbelieving neighbors, our unbelieving family members, those who have wandered from the church and are living under the domain of the devil. God, make them to come to themselves as the prodigal did, to not like eating pig slop and to come back to eat the bread and the wine of this table. Feed them. God, feed our region, feed our nation with Christ. Make us to hunger for you. In Jesus' name, and amen. Amen.